You cannot have a democracy without stability. You cannot have a democracy when you have gaping inequalities. And so if for no other reason than to protect the idea of a republic or a democracy, we have to resolve these issues that have led to where we are right now. Because at the point where people feel like they have to resolve issues in the streets, rightly or wrongly, that I think has to lead us to a bigger conversation about where we are as a society. Hey everyone, it's Jenna. This week we have an episode that we hope will help bring some context and some understanding to some of the complicated feelings and emotions we're all experiencing right now as we watch protests unfold throughout the country in the wake of George Floyd's death. Our guest this week is Clarence Lang, the Dean of the College of the Liberal Arts here at Penn State, and also a scholar of social movements and civil unrest among African-American communities. Clarence and I talk about the civil rights movement and some of the potential perils in using those events 50 years ago as a frame to look at the protests that are happening today. We also talk about uh, how issues of structural racism and injustice are correlated with the the rise of of neoliberalism throughout the past 30 or 40 years in, in the U.S., But Clarence is ultimately hopeful in the end. She has a really nuanced perspective on this, both as a human and as a scholar. And uh, we are really grateful to him for taking the time to do this interview. So let's get to my interview with Clarence Lang. Clarence, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. So as as we record this today on June 2nd, it feels like we've been in kind of a a watershed moment for the past week or so as we're seeing protests throughout the country following the the death of George Floyd. And I think a a big question we're just going to dive right into it is is why now? What is it about this current moment that has sparked such a, a reaction throughout the country. I know the the question of why now is is a big one with no clear answer. But you know, from your background as someone who who studies social movements and and moments of civil unrest, are there things that you're thinking about or that we can think about to help us make sense of this current moment? I, I'm certainly happy to try. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think part of why now. I mean, I think we're in the moment that began before May 25th, obviously, where you've had people settling this question or attempting to settle the question of how justice is dispensed or not in the streets. Uh, So we can go back now, I suppose, about five or six years. um, If we think about the events in Ferguson, Missouri and, and Baltimore. And so those are still very much fresh and in memory, and I think there are long memories in play here. And so from that standpoint, it's not surprising. I mean, we have a very active discourse, for example, of Black Lives Matter, and we can go, you know, before that to uh, the Occupy movement, if you want to call it that. So I, I think that there has been over the past several years, a discourse about justice, about equity, about racial 
violence, whether that's done by individuals who are functioning under uh, the cover of law or those individuals who are essentially taking matters into their own hands as, as vigilantes. I would say that in the longer term, I think we have to, to understand these events as part of a consequence of what I would consider having been decades of a retreat from a support for public institutions of, of caregiving, a retreat from the idea that members of a society have a right to expect certain kinds of social provisioning and guarantees by virtue of being a member of, of the society. That particular idea and policies to support that idea have been in retreat for some time. And I want to be clear that that's occurred under the watch of both Democratic and Republican presidents. And so in some ways, we have an issue that I think crosses the complexion, literally and figuratively, of um, several presidential administrations. And I, I think we're at a reckoning point for that. To that point about this has been decades coming, I, I mean, is it the case that the previous movements that we've seen, you know, Black Lives Matter several years ago and, and even back to, to Rodney King in the, in yeah, the, in the 90s. 90s and, you know, things mm-hmm. like this. Is it is it the case, do you think, that the promises or, or what the, the movement was asking for has not been delivered? And is is that part of this, too, this this kind of escalation or maybe this tipping point that, that we've seen over the past you know, week or two? I think definitely... I mean, and let's keep in mind, too, that uh, just in the last couple of weeks or so, I mean, George Floyd's death in some ways was the tail end of a few other incidents that had occurred. So I, I think there's a there's a, a situation where, where people have seen these nationally covered events unfold. And then I, I, I think that that becomes punctuated by the particularly grisly end that, that many of us saw a horrific end for George George Floyd. And then, of course, you think about Mike Brown. I mean, you think about just the, the, the other, the roll call, if you will, this tragic roll call. Um, these are still very much fresh in people's memories and have been formative of a number of, of young students or young individuals and not so young people's lives. And then there's this, this active, I think, rhetoric um, that's very un- unhealthy, to put it mildly, but you could say also just incendiary in some cases. And I don't want to say that there was bound to be a response, but I I will say that while I was saddened and angered by what I saw unfold over this past weekend, I have to say that I wasn't surprised. Was I shocked at, you know, at some of the images that I, that I saw? Well, yes, but it, it was hardly surprising. The question was not whether something like this was going to occur, but really when. And we know that these things have been cyclical. So, you know, I remember 1992. I remember 2015, as others do. As a scholar, I've read about the 1960s, and I know people who have recollections of of, of that period. And so, I think that there's an ebb and flow, and I, I think we're at a a very strong um, a high tide for this particular activity. And that's just talking in the context of the United States. We could talk about 
uh, events a few years ago in the 2000s, if memory serves, in Paris and then in, in the United Kingdom. So these are, uh, among other things, global phenomena. Sure. Those domestic. Sure. So um, you, you, you touched on the, the civil rights era there. I definitely want to um, make sure we, we come back and touch on that. But um, I know in, in your scholarly work, you've also touched on the uh, relationship between neoliberalism and, and how that has impacted uh, communities of color and, and created the, the sense of, of inequality that we're seeing play out you know, right now, and as, as you described over, over the past years or, or, or decades, can you talk a little bit more about that, that relationship? Maybe first give, give our listeners a, a brief refresher on kind of the, the basic principles of, of neoliberalism. I would, yeah. I would recommend everybody go back and listen to our episode with Wendy Brown on that. But what are those forces at play and, and how have they particularly yeah. impacted African-American communities? Well, you know, that term gets used in different kinds of ways by different people. So there's no response to that that won't be without controversy. But I will say in, in, in a very shorthand, it is a mode of organizing a society economically, but also governing politically that's premised on the idea that people's fundamental relationship is to the market and market forces. And in terms of how that orientation has influenced social policy, it results in, and again, I'm speaking in very broad, broad terms, but it results in a, again, an evisceration, a retreat from what we might call the social contract or a social contract in terms of so, social welfare provisionings, uh, very thing from fair wages to collective bargaining rights to uh, guarantees of public support and provisioning of education, health, housing, the basic necessities of life, while at the same time you have a fattening of the more austere, restrictive, and even violent capacities of government as as well. And so people essentially are thrown onto the tender mercies of the market and the kinds of protections that folks certainly over the course of the 20th century had come to believe government was responsible for providing or supporting or guaranteeing, these things get thrown out of the window. And as a consequence, to discipline people to that new order, you have had, for example, a militarization of police. Certainly, um, we've seen an expansion of the, the state's will and capacity to incarcerate people. And you've had, as has been experienced on a ground level, people figuring out how to piece together livelihoods and lives with dignity. And so, as I understand the kind of racial violence that we've seen over the past decades, that, in my view, is a consequence of this broader shift in social and economic policy, not just in this nation, but also globally. So in one context, we might call it structural adjustment. If, if we think about how this look has looked in the in the global south, if, if if you will, we have a particular kind of manifestation of that here, and so I, I say that to make the point that we can't understand racial violence in this particular period apart from the broader context in which it it's occurred. 
And so for me, as I think about what's occurring right now and in recent decades, for me, I understand that is tied to these broader social forces. And in fact, my argument would be that race has been used as leverage for this shift in social policy. If we think, for example, of just the term welfare, welfare in a general sense is anything that a government or a state provides its citizenry, and that includes everything from unemployment insurance, old age pensions, guarantees to fair housing, support for education, picking up your garbage, building bridges, repairing roads, all these kinds of things that that give the citizenry a quality of life. And what we had was a discourse that basically reduced this broad term welfare to a single program, which was once aid to dependent children, then became aid to families with dependent children. And then during the Bill Clinton presidency, for example, became temporary aid to needy families, you know, reduced to a a program that became in public imagery and conversation personified by primarily women and people of color. The uh, welfare queen, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's not coincidental. And that kind of imagery was used to vilify not just a single program, but to cast into disrepute the idea that government even ought to provide these kinds of provisions. And while many people were drawn into agreement with that idea because they were responding to a very racialized and gendered depiction of the undeserving poor, right, the welfare queen who was taking their money through fraudulent means, it became a way of attacking the idea that government should provide any forms of social welfare and social security, small s, social security, Mm -hmm. to the population writ large. And we're seeing the consequences of that now in ways that are that don't just simply affect communities of color or women, but are now having negative consequences across the board, because the idea that government ought to do these sorts of things in terms of provisioning the public, that has become something that's been attacked across the board. It's the case that you know these these communities are becoming more and more underfunded, and yeah. I think of a of a conversation that we had on the show with Aaron Maben, a former Penn State football player and and NFL player who's now an activist working in Baltimore, and uh, he's a a teacher. His school didn't have heats. Is yeah. you know one of the schools in in uh, West Baltimore, and so there's just all this anger built up from not having these resources or having things taken away, combined with as you yeah. suggested the escalation of violence and the the militarization of of the police. And that what you have is in a sense the punitive functions of government or the state, if you will, become ramped up, and the social welfare provisionings of the state. To the examples you were giving that becomes eroded. And so so what you have is one particular form of violence, right? Because if you deprive people of quality education, housing, abilities to make a living, let's be clear, that's a form of violence. I think we're seeing how that has begot in its contemporary moment, but over over several decades, the, the kind of uh, unrest that we're seeing in the streets. And by the way, the militarization of the police, that occurred in a very racialized kind of a way. And now we have a situation where 
you have law enforcement agencies that are equipped and are oriented toward functioning in very punitive ways to anyone who might be in the street across racial and other identities. So just wanted to say that. That all seems to me to be the opposite of the way that a democracy should function, or at least the what we are, we're kind of taught to think of as the bedrock of, of democracy. Let's put it this way. If what we have been seeing in the streets were occurring in a global South, I know that that's a, that's a tricky framing, but I'll use it for the sake of conversation. If this were occurring in Latin America or in Southern Africa, or even in Eastern Europe, right? I think we would have no problem saying that, wow, that's a society that's coming apart at the seams. And so when you have a certain level of inequality that becomes translated into civil and political unrest, it becomes, I think, very difficult to maintain a participatory democracy. And so we put aside the question of, if you will, which is, I think, a difficult thing to do, who's right and who's wrong in this, right? If you were to even do that. The fact that you have pitched battles occurring between citizens and police, however you want to assign blame or, or what have you, that is not an indication of a healthy democracy. That is not an indication of a stable society. You cannot have a democracy without stability. You cannot have a democracy when you have gaping inequalities. And so if for no other reason than to protect the idea of a republic or a democracy, we have to resolve these issues that have led to where we are right now. And that's not about being sentimental or however you want to characterize it. That becomes a fundamental issue of maintaining a stable society. So equity, if you will, is not just simply an ethical issue. It is also a practical issue of how you maintain the stability of a society. Because at the point where people feel like they have to resolve issues in the streets, rightly or wrongly, that I think has to lead us to a bigger conversation about where we are as a society. And even dispassionate conversations about how we address the sources of these issues. Can I give you a a quick example of this? Sure. So I think people can have powerful emotions on either side of this question about the role of law enforcement in communities and particularly working class and communities of color. And as someone who has had law enforcement in his family, right, very close relative, longtime member of the Chicago Police Department, uh, for for example. So I can see all kinds of nuances in, in, in this conversation. But if people's relationship to police departments is one where they feel the police act arbitrarily and the police are acting arbitrarily and abusively, that becomes a threat to law and order. And so it's not just simply an ethical issue, but if people do not trust that law enforcement function in legal and ethical and fair ways, then that undermines our respect for law enforcement and law and order. And then people come to the conclusion that their relationship to the police 
in law enforcement has to become one simply of the wielding of power. And so it, it ends up creating a legitimacy, a crisis of legitimacy in law enforcement and law and order, if that makes sense. If I think about sort of the ethics of this and how, the, how ethics can be, if you will, not necessarily always a, a matter of sentiment. Having grown up in a, you know, a working class community, I was very much interested in this question of making sure that people had the opportunities to earn dignified, meaningful livelihoods, not just simply because it's the right thing to do, but also because I, I didn't want people that I loved and care about having their homes broken into, getting mugged on the streets, getting accosted in stairwells, right? And so we all do better <laughs> when there's equity and justice, right? So it's not just simply about bleeding hearts for others. I think that that's important, but it also becomes something that is in everyone's interest, if you will, to do the right thing. The rub there comes from, to that point of, of power, you know, people who already have some position of power, whether that's financial, whether that's social, whether, you know, whatever form it might take, having to yield some of that or, or, or mm -hmm. give some of that up or share some of that. I think that's, that's maybe where some of this, this tension comes to light too, of people yeah. not wanting to give up part of their slice of the pie to, to create a, a more equitable pie for, for everyone. So to speak. Which of course is short-sighted, I, I think, thinking about what is in one's interest. So I think, for example, about the fact that when individuals, and this is in part sort of my commitment to higher ed as, as much as we can have one in the kind of circumstances that we're in, you know, this idea that, that if people are not able to achieve self-actualization, self-realization, are not able to develop their full potential, then we all lose as a society because we have individuals who otherwise could have had pathways and opportunities to be creative and productive members of society are deprived of that. And we are, as a consequence, we're not a healthier society, but we're also a less productive one, right? If we think about the loss of human potential here, that is not just about that individual flourishing and finding their own selves and their place in the world, but also about how we're deprived of their abilities to make substantive contributions. And that, to me, is very saddening when you think about that, the loss of potential and what that can mean if we have everyone as much as, as we're able as contributing members of society, because indeed everyone has something to contribute. Right. We could have a whole other conversation about the democratization in higher ed and all of the, the mm -hmm. kind of implications there. But for now, I, I want to return to the civil rights era. Yeah. I think that as we see reports from protests or, or perhaps even experience them ourselves, there's there's lots of discussion about a, a peaceful protest or, or a nonviolent protest versus one that, that turns violent. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that a lot of how we think about it is kind of tied to the visions of, of what the civil rights era protests look like, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the March on Washington and the lunch counter sit-ins mm -hmm. and like all of these, these sorts of things. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that frame or that way of thinking about things is as valid today or you know how we should be thinking about the current moment in in relationship to something that that happened 50 years ago given how much society has changed yeah. between now and then well I really appreciate that question Jenna what a wonderful question if we compare what's happening right now in the streets in terms of the unrest the looting 
however we want to term it, riots, even, I will use that word, right? And we compare it to our historical memories, how we framed the civil rights movement of the 1950s and, and 1960s. It certainly is a divergence. I think what's important to note is that nonviolent mass direct action as an organizing principle of black protest, that was actually a rather short period, right? So if we just think about African-American history and the longer history there, if, if we take that long view, then in fact, the dominant idea of, of nonviolent resistance actually represents a short period in African-American history because a longer history has been a lot more tumultuous than that. So that's a very, very particular period in time when for a short period of time, the argument prevailed of nonviolent resistance as a, a dominant strategy. People had to be trained in that. That was nothing organic to African-American communities, even among people who consider themselves observant Christians or what have you. Nat Turner, slave rebellion leader, was a minister, but his relationship to his ministry was very different, for example, than Martin Luther King Jr. So some historical perspective I think is useful there, that that idealized period is actually in the longer span of African-American history and social movement history more generally is a short one. But then I also add, if we place these disturbances in a broader history of mass violence in the United States or what became the United States, depending on how far we want to go back, actually it becomes more consistent with a longer train of American history, if that makes sense. That is to say, you could connect what's occurring right now to the civil rights movement, but you could also connect it to various labor struggles, commodity riots, rebellions that have occurred over the course of what we now call American history. And you will find that what's happening right now is actually quite consistent with that long history in the U.S. So it all comes down to, you know, what's the basis of comparison? And if we, if we frame these in a much longer history, we will find that what we're seeing is not as much of a divergence as we might want to frame it based on a very nostalgic and sometimes distorted view of Black protest history. Thinking, thinking again about, about that historical frame, I mean, so what, you know, we're all familiar with these, these images of, of protests and, and people in the streets, but what's happening behind the scenes or, you know, what, what's happening in, in terms of the policy fronts or, or how is that, or how has historically the, the kind of action on the ground been married with with other courses of action to lead to yeah. substantive policy changes? If we take the 1960s as an example, the late 1960s, what would, would tend to occur that the organizations, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Congress of Racial Equality, what have you, these were certainly not instigators of these rebellions, though they were, were blamed for them. But what would occur that in the aftermath of these, these uprisings, rebellions, riots, disturbances, they would begin to formulate programs to address the root causes of the violence. And so however this ends, or whenever this ends, some persons or organizations, if something is going to come out of this, right, are going to have to be poised to think through and work toward executing some sustainable projects, initiatives, 
what have you, to address the root causes of what we've seen. What that's going to look like, I don't know, right? Because we also have to keep in mind, even though we've been looking at this on a national scale, these things are also emanating from very local circumstances as well. So I suppose the right question to ask is, what are the forces that exist in all of these communities locally that are positioned to begin the kinds of necessary conversations, planning and building and organizing so that the outcome of this is not just simply vandalized buildings and broken windows and people incarcerated and ill, by the way, through to this pandemic. And that, I think, remains to be, to be seen because, again, at least I should say it's not clear to me because I don't have a good sense of what the operating forces are on the ground. Someone's going to have to do that work on the back end, and I don't know what that's going to look like. Plus, if we think about the, the late 1960s, there at least was a consensus policy-wise, as imperfect as it was, that government ought to be interventionist and active in addressing the sources of inequality. If we think about the war on poverty programs, we could have a, a whole other conversation about the problems with those in terms of formulation and implementation or what have you. But at least there was a framework where elected officials across parties functioned with an understanding that there were certain things that government ought to do. So organizers could have a conversation with individuals who were keen on trying to figure out certain kinds of programs at a local level to address poverty, for example, because there was a a federal commitment to fighting poverty. The other X factor, aside from what are the forces on the ground that can engage in conversations about programmatic planning and rebuilding, the other part of this, the other X factor, if you will, is I don't know what the will will be from the federal government on down to having those conversations, or if we're just in for more punitive, austere measures, right? Because that has to be a two-way conversation. So people can come with all the programs that they want, but if the reigning idea and assumption is that the way that we deal with civil unrest is just to better equip police, lock down communities, cordon them off, build more prisons, make our our criminal laws more, um, make them uglier, if you will, then we will have have missed an opportunity, I think, to do something something else. So that, for me at least, not just as a scholar, but just as as a citizen, is a big question mark right now. So, you know, the other thing, going back to the uh, civil rights era, thinking about how does the level of support from white people, from non-African-Americans compare today to to what it was then, perhaps? And this was also yeah. a, a point of contention for Martin Luther King and, and others back then. I'm wondering if there are any, yeah. any correlations we can draw today. Well, I want to preface this by saying that I'm not a cynic. But I think what I'm about to say might come off as cynical. <laughs> so, so here goes. So I think on the one hand, we have to disrupt the idea, uh, among other things, that, that everyone who participated in what we've now called the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s was committed to nonviolent protest. There were countervailing trends at the same time. And I'm not just talking about Malcolm X. I'm talking about individuals who participated in what you might call civil rights organizations, but who saw nonviolence as at best situational, but were not committed to it philosophically in the way that Martin Luther King Jr. was. And he was committed uh, or developed a commitment to it philosophically. 
So there, there are always people who, who under a certain set of circumstances were perfectly willing and trained and able to engage in what some of us might call armed self-help, if you will. I mean, I think the other thing that I would, I would say that we have to be careful of is presuming that support for the civil rights movement, the classical civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, was solid among the white public. At the time that the Voting Rights of Act of 65 and the Civil Rights Act of 64 passed, you know, there was polling data that suggested that there was no consensus among the white public that these things should, should exist. And so the support among particularly young whites certainly was there, and we see that at certain periods. But again, that was a short moment, and I, I think it would be an overstatement to claim that they reflected a majority opinion. And there are others who, who would disagree with me, scholars and otherwise, but you've asked me and that's, that's my view. Right. I think in a similar manner today, we have to, I think, be cautious about how far reaching we presume white sentiment is today. Certainly we can see who's in the streets and it certainly is not just people of color, of course. But I think how we extrapolate from that in terms of the depth of white solidarity and support is something we should be careful of. And this will sound very, very cynical, but I believe it to be true. Anti-racism has never been a mass movement among white Americans. At best, you have a certain segment who have peeled off and have put themselves in solidarity with the struggles of, of people of color, but they have never been a majority. And I think what becomes most important, in my view at least, as a scholar, um, and I will say as a person of color, the important thing will be what are the different kinds of structures that people of color will build internal to their communities, right? That I think that the capacity has to be built there, the fuel has to be there, and then you bring into play those segments of the broader society that you can. And I want to be clear, I'm an optimist, right, by, by nature. So I'm not suggesting that anything is hopeless. I am just myself very clear on where the locus of the hope has to be located. And it will have to be ultimately in those communities who are the most affected by the conditions that have led us to this moment. But so can I just ask a, a personal question, if you don't sure. mind? I mean, you've you've talked about, you know, your own history in in Chicago and your, your family's involvement in, in law enforcement. I mean, how how are you reacting to all this this personally? And, and how does the fact that you also happen to study this stuff from yeah. from a scholarly perspective fit into that? Wow, that's a good. <laughs> so uh, on, on the best days, I am optimistic as an historian that there are ways that we can confront the challenges of the moment. But then, of course, as a, a son, a husband, a, a parent, a friend, you know, an uncle, you know, you have those moments where you wonder where this all ends, because sometimes it does seem like that you're caught in this loop of violence, right? And that you've witnessed or experienced or has, has happened to you or that people older than you have, have experienced or people younger than you and those who are the youngest worried about what they will experience. But then I, I try to, so for me, being a historian is not just simply what I do as a scholar, but it also helps to orient how I approach the world. And so I try to keep in mind that 
every situation has the seeds of its opposite. So that no matter how desperate a situation feels or appears, if we commit ourselves to observation and study and reflection and discourse and dialogue, I am, am hopeful that we can identify the opportunities that exist in a moment where it may appear that opportunities don't. And so one thing that keeps me going is that as a humanist, we may yet be able to discover a leverage point to begin to surface alternatives to what exists currently. Because in every crisis, there exists an opportunity, just as every opportunity contains the seeds of a crisis. So I try and think dialectically with the hope that we can come out on the other side. You know, sometimes that's the best that I can can come up with, to be right. perfectly, to be perfectly frank. Right. Yeah. No. I think that is a very sobering perspective, uh, and and one that that's definitely um, worth worth hearing and and worth reflecting on as well. Just one final question here, but before we let you go, Clarence, um, for listeners that might be looking to learn more about some of these these structural issues, some of these broader trends we've been talking about, are there any books or, or any resources you would recommend that folks check out? Yeah, my, you know, I haven't looked at my library in a long time. It's been in my office and I've, of course, not been there. So I, I don't have anything handy. I would say a, a good starting point, to be frank, would be, and there are better books, but but I, I've, I've found very suggestive Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. Um, it's very literary, it's brief, but very impactful. I would start there. A nod to the humanists. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, we will uh, link to that in our show notes. Clarence, thank you so much for for joining us today and for uh, having this this important conversation with us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the questions that you've surfaced and appreciate being asked. It's an election year. And if you are a listener of the show, that means voting and maybe even campaigning for your preferred candidates. But supporters of democracy like you also believe in the value of working together with people across differences to strengthen our country. A new nonpartisan program called Uniting for Action America provides just that opportunity. The program is open to U.S. residents over the age of 18 from urban, suburban, and rural areas with wide-ranging political views. You'll have the chance to build relationships, strengthen your problem-solving skills, explore different perspectives, and take action to strengthen our country and our democracy. The registration deadline for Uniting for Action America is June 30th. If you're interested, you can sign up at uraction.org slash America. Again, that is uraction.org slash America. And the registration deadline is June 30th. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. 
And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.